This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office protects American intellectual property. At the same time, it's working to increase and diversify entrepreneurship and collaboration between innovators and federal agencies. Then, Serving Those Who Served is the mission of the Interagency Veterans Advisory Council. The group's leader describes new initiatives to support vets employed by federal agencies. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. The mission of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is to support American innovation, issue patent and trademarks, and ultimately drive economic growth. Kathy Vidal is the Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property and Director of the office. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So how does protecting American intellectual property protect American innovation? Well, thank you for asking that. It's critical that we protect innovation with intellectual property, not only to incentivize investment in the innovation uh, and to bring that innovation to market so that we can all benefit from the innovation, but also to ensure that others don't later steal that innovation. And when we're talking about patenting things, what, what specifically can be patented and what's the benefit of having a patent? So any good idea can be patented. Um, that's the whole purpose of the system. So in terms of what can be patented, it could be anything from the idea of a, a windshield wiper that's intermittent to a light bulb to um, some sort of a um, some sort of an implementation on a computer where you've improved the computer um, to, to a handbag that you've designed in a different way. Uh, there's two kinds of patents. One is a utility patent uh, that protects more of the technological changes, um, but also there are design patents that may protect the design of something that you're offering. And tell us about how long the average patent application process is from start to finish. So the, the average process can take a couple years, but we do have a couple programs in place where we can actually expedite applications. So we are working very hard to identify key technologies and to support those who are new to the patent system so that they can get their patent more quickly, um, incentivize investment and bring products to market more quickly. And I, I will also add that even having a patent pending so the minute that you file for a patent, you can say you have a patent pending, that in and of itself can help you attract investment and can keep people away from your invention. The agency just launched its Women Entrepreneurship Initiative. Why the focus on women? So um, first of all, I will say we are focused on everyone who is not currently represented in the innovation ecosystem through our Council for Inclusive Innovation. The reason we decided to launch a specific initiative with women first before we move to other sectors is because of the opportunity that we know that women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs at the same time they lack access to funding. So we wanna make sure we're bringing everyone together to solve those issues. We also know that if we can improve female access, women access and access by others to the innovation ecosystem, for example, if we can quadruple the number of inventors, we can increase GDP by $1 trillion. So we're talking not only about economic prosperity, but about jobs for Americans. 
So how does that initiative work, the Women's Entrepreneurship Initiative? So thank you for that. So what we're doing is we're bringing together women and funders and those who support women across the country. And we're making sure we give them access to mentors, that we teach them how to get funding, how to protect their intellectual property, uh, to make sure that they can then build on that intellectual property and seek investment. So we are going to start hosting We Wednesdays once a month. Uh, we invite everyone to join. We, uh, in our first uh, session, we have over 1,000 women joining us and look forward to just providing a support mechanism, not creating something new, but leveraging all the great resources across this country, both public and private, to support women. And what impact do you expect that it, it will have? And, and what have you seen already? So we just launched it, so we have not seen the impact yet. Um, I will say that we get out and meet women where they are. Uh, we know that women generally th thrive in collaboration. When we get out and meet women where they are, the numbers are staggering. So right now, the percent of women listed on patents is about 12 to 13%. When we meet women where they are with free legal services to help them patent, that number jumps to 41%. So we know the statistics are there, the data is there, and we just need to do our work. And you mentioned free legal uh, services. Tell me a little bit more about what um, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office offers as far as pro bono legal support. And, and thank you for, uh, for asking that question. As soon as I got into this position, that was one thing I doubled down on immediately. So the USPTO offers pro bono through collaboration with 21 organizations that cover the entire United States. Um, anybody can go to a search tool and type in USPTO and pro bono and find out how to access those free legal services. We also collaborate with law school clinics throughout the country for both patents and trademarks, um, and we have other legal services as well. So our goal generally is to make sure that everybody has access to the innovation ecosystem, everybody learns about patenting and about protecting IP early, uh, and then we get them the resources and tools to do so. Well, talking about learning, uh, you're, you encourage entrepreneurship at all ages. There's something called Camp Invention. Yes, yes, thanks. Uh, thank you for mentioning Camp Invention. So it's a, it's a collaboration that we have with the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Uh, it is critical that we reach children early. Everybody's born an innovator, and we just need to let them know uh, that they can unleash that potential, that they can protect their ideas with intellectual property. And so what we do is we go out throughout schools in the country. We're going to ramp this up even more. Um, last year, we taught 250,000 children about the value of innovation and about protecting their IP. And by the end of the week, they are asking questions that we hear from adults like, how can I protect my merch on the internet? So um, the work that we're doing now is really going to set the pace for the future. All right, Kathy, we're going to pause here. Stand by. We'll continue after the break, okay? Up next, I'll continue the conversation with Kathy Vidal. She's the director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. We'll be right back. I'm back with Kathy Vidal. She's the Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property and Director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Kathy, what's going on with um, the military? Obviously, it's a, a big innovator. What is the agency doing to help protect defense technologies? So that, that's a great question. Uh, when I define inclusive innovation, I'm really speaking about everyone. So not just those that identify as diverse, but importantly, 
the military, military families, veterans. Um, and as you mentioned, there is a lot of innovation coming out of our military. So what we are doing is, as with any other initiative, we are meeting people where they are. I just came back from Fort Bragg where not only did I meet with entrepreneurs who were either in the military and uh, were doing entrepreneurship as a second job or part of military families, I also met with the chief technology officer on the base to figure out how we can do more to make sure that all the great innovation coming out of our military not only benefits the military, but also creates jobs in the country and benefits the country as a whole. And how is the agency approaching new technologies like the metaverse and digital assets? And, you know, there's the so-called non-fungible tokens. Exactly. So part of our mission is to make sure that we are protecting and incentivizing innovation for the country in all areas, especially in key technology areas. So when it comes to things like emerging technologies and artificial intelligence, we've started a partnership where we meet regularly with the public, with stakeholders, to figure out how we can be doing a better job in terms of creating the rules, the infrastructure to incentivize and protect innovation. When it com comes to non-fungible tokens and the metaverse and, um, and all of those types of things, it's not just a matter of what the USPTO can do, it's what, it's what the government can do. So we're collaborating with the Copyright Office and we're seeking public comment on how we can protect innovation in that space. And what, what's the agency doing to support sustainable technologies to combat climate change? And, and, and sustainable technologies are one of the most key technologies. You know, anything that really benefits the world uh, as a whole, the country we are focused on, whether it's related to health or related to the environment. And so what we are doing in that regard is we do have an expedited examination program so that people can get their patents more quickly when they invent in this space so that we can incentivize innovation and really get those, those climate and sustainable um, innovations into the market more quickly. We are also working across borders on that with other agencies in other countries to make sure that we're collaborating and that we're doing this as a world, not just as a country, including being a partner with WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, uh, in terms of providing a marketplace for green technologies. And can you expand on that, Kathy, about what you're doing to protect American intellectual property abroad? Uh, so thank, thank you for asking that. I just came back from Southeast Asia a couple months ago. And what we're doing abroad is we want to make sure that other countries have a robust and reliable IP infrastructure like the United States. A lot of our allies do. Some of the more developing countries need assistance with their laws. Uh, they need support. They need to make sure that uh, they're, they're moving in the right direction. And so we are there to help. We have attaches across the world. Um, we are in those countries and, and working to develop the infrastructure in those countries. And we're also, through our attache program, we're also there to help companies in the U.S. navigate the systems in other countries. And then beyond that, we're trying to make sure that the access to protection across the world is easy. So we're trying to harmonize with other countries so that we don't have different rules and different structures everywhere. What would you say is the greatest challenge that the USPTO is facing right now? I think the greatest challenge is just time. 
you know, now, right now is the time uh, the, the entire country is focused on our goals, business and industry. They're all focused on the goals that we have. And we just need to move quickly to make sure that we're developing at a fast pace, that those who don't have access to the innovation ecosystem hear about it uh, sooner rather than later so that we can create jobs and economic prosperity. You've been in office just under a year, so it's still early, but I wonder what are you most hoping to accomplish as you head into the next year for the USPTO? So I would say it falls in two buckets. One is what we've been talking about, which is really making sure that we're out there meeting people where they are, giving them the resources to protect their innovation, protect their brands and bring their brands to market. So part of it is really just trying to have a major impact on jobs in this country. The other part is to make sure that our system works properly, that um, everything within the USPTO in terms of how we patent, how we register trademarks, how quickly we do it, um, and what the laws are in the country around what is and is not patent eligible. We wanna make sure we're playing our role to get that as right as possible so that the system works for everyone. And Kathy, you know, you have extensive experience in the private sector, you have an engineering background. How does that shape your leadership of the Patent and Trademark Office? So as I was being confirmed, the one thing that I thought about was, it doesn't matter what my background is, what matters is that I'm open to listening to others. So certainly I do have a technical background. I've been in industry, I've invested in startups, I've been on a board of a startup. So I've seen a lot and what I know is I don't have all the answers. That it's really critical to me that I speak to stakeholders. I've been doing that since day one and that whatever we do is, is to the benefit of the entire country. And I know you've been a big um, supporter of getting more young girls into the STEM fields. Absolutely. I've been working on that, on women, girls, diversity for a very long time. And I just couldn't be more thrilled to have the platform I have now, to have the resources I have now and the collaborations across government and across the public private sector um, to, to really move the needle in a meaningful way. And just finally, give us an idea of how many employees you have and how big the budget is. Um, so the employee base, which I, I my colleagues, uh, there are 13,000 of us. Um, our budget is over $4 billion. Um, so we certainly have the resources. We have incredible people here uh, that are really working every day for the country to make sure we get this done. All right, Kathy, nice talking to you. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Coming up on Government Matters, an organization supporting veterans released new findings about how vets are faring in federal jobs. We'll be right back. The Interagency Veterans Advisory Council supports the roughly half a million vets employed in the federal government. They just released their 2022 report. Lloyd Calderon the, is the founder and chair of the organization. Lloyd, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having us. So what would you say is the biggest employment challenges that face vets in the federal government? Getting their foot in the door. That's the biggest challenge. Even though there are hiring authorities that support veterans in the federal workplace, uh, you still have to meet the minimum requirements and to and make the cert list. Uh, that's the biggest challenge. Are vets staying in those federal jobs or is there is there a retention problem when it comes to vets? I wouldn't say there's a retention problem because a third of the federal workforce is veteran based. 
Uh, the challenge probably becomes more on career progression. You know, how do I get from my entry-level position, perhaps, to a more senior position? Um, sometimes in the military, it's, everything's very structured, whereas in the federal government, it's not as structured. So you have to create your own career path. So do you think vets struggle more with that than any other civilian? I would say no. It's just an awareness issue. Like, I'm, I'm responsible for my federal career. Nobody else is. And I think that's across the table. But there's, but there's an understanding uh, or a misunderstanding that once they come into federal government, that there's a path to success. Well, the, you have to create your path. And well, speaking of success, your report says that the vets are underrepresented in federal senior leadership. Why do you think that is? It's, it's a fact. It's uh, Department of Labor Statistics bear that out. And uh, we, we just, I believe the reason it is what it is, is sometimes our veterans don't sell their story as successfully as they should. Uh, they're used to doing the mission, getting the job done. They're not into self-promotion, per se. And sometimes we have to toot our own horns uh, so that people know what do veterans bring to the table? And they bring to the table a host of skills, talent and experience and professionalism. And leadership skills, Tons which is important in, in federal leader, leadership positions. That is correct. You, uh, you conducted a telework survey. Um, what did you find? What we found is that a lot of folks would prefer to telework because of the quality of life issues that it brings to the table. Uh, Obviously, the commute, uh, the, the time saved, uh, time with family is important. If you, if you drive from, in my case, from Ashburn, Virginia to the district, it's a 45-minute commute with no issues, right? So that's time not well spent. The data from OPM actually shows that some agencies employ much higher percentages of veterans than others. Did that surprise you? No. No, because there are some agencies within the federal government that lend themselves to what the veteran brings to the table. How? Homeland Security, the Department of Defense. Uh, sometimes folks like to go where their comfort level is similar to what they experience in the military. And some of these organizations are paramilitary structured organizations. Police organizations are that way. And so some folks tend to, to gravitate to those positions because they're more comfortable in those positions. Service members have to complete uh, at least 180 days of consecutive duty to earn a veteran hiring preference. Mm -hmm. You would like to see that changed. Why? Correct. The, the, what we're talking about is the National Guard and Reserve personnel, uh, specifically. Why, why should it be changed? Very simple. When a reserve component, soldier, sailor, airman, uh, Coast Guard, Marine Corps, when they deploy in support of a national objective, they deploy in uniform, right? The enemy doesn't care that they're a reserve component member. It doesn't distinguish or discriminate between this is an active duty troop and this is a reserve component member. So I think if that's the case, which it is, that our rules and regulations should honor the fact that when we put on a uniform, whether it's active duty or reserve component, that we sacrifice the same. 
Tell us about some of the challenges facing military spouses when it comes to employment in the federal government. The biggest challenge is the, the, the moving, the starting over, the reconnecting, the, the career ladder, if you will, gets, gets stymied at, at, at each move. So then a spouse has to start over from scratch. Uh, and maybe not from scratch, but they got to start over and create new relationships, uh, new um, career objectives and goals. Uh, so whenever a, a military spouse has a permanent change of station, uh, they lose a lot in that transition. And then... And, and what are your recommendations to help? Well, we have several recommendations in our annual report. One of them is, uh, first of all, let's create a, a military spouse employment program manager at each federal agency. They do this with other special emphasis groups. Um, and depending on, of course, the organization's uh, administrative or budgetary constraints, they can do it as an additional duty if they can't commit to a, a resource. And begin networking people and creating opportunities to learn and grow within the federal government. All right. Well, Lloyd, thank you so much for coming in and for your support of vets across the federal government. Well, thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for our email list on our homepage. And we'll be right back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. 
we use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right, well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi, nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.